Um, let's get into it. We have a lot of work to do um, in chapter 9 of Romans. And um, I, I've never preached through the book of Romans before. And uh, so actually, when, when all the Southlands congregational leaders get together, we do this once a year, we kind of look at our calendar and we say, hey, what are we going to preach through, blah, blah, blah. And um, it was my stupid idea to raise my hand and say, I think we should go through the book of Romans, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And, um, you know, I've, I respect a lot this guy named John Piper. Um, he, whenever I have maybe some theological questions, I often will, will listen to his sermon or kind of listen to his podcast or whatever. And his statement about the book of Romans really um, should have let me know better. He said... When I considered preaching through the book of Romans, I waited for maybe 15 years to do so. He said, every time I would approach it, it was like going to the base of a mountain. And all I could see were the low-hanging fog and clouds around the, and I could never see the top of it. And it wasn't until now that I kind of had the confidence to even approach the book. Now, if somebody like John Piper, who is smarter than any of us in this room theologically probably, um, says something like that about the book of Romans, then that means that you have to give me a lot of grace this morning. So uh, I thought preaching Romans 8 verses 28 through, uh, through 30 and looking at that and going, okay, this is going to be really intimidating. And then I knew Romans chapter 9 was coming, but just didn't really remember for some reason how intense this was going to be. And so all that to say is like, all, all we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to read through it. I'm going to do my best to try to help us uh, see the greatness of who God is through this scripture. And um, if you have ought, that's a very new, that's a very King James word of saying uh, some issues. If you have ought with your brother Kelly this morning. Um, I would just say go to the Bible this morning, because all I'm going to do is just say what the Bible says, and um, so we'll leave it at that, all right? You guys okay? All right, so uh, in Romans 8, uh, what we did is we, the encouragement for us was to have this lofty, this high view of salvation. What does that mean to have a, have a lofty and high view of salvation? Well, as, as Sean, uh, Sean Sepulveda says, just a biblical view of salvation, which means that God is the initiator in salvation. God is the author of salvation. God holds salvation in his hands, and he's the one who's able to give salvation. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our moral standing. It's not based even the fact that we don't pursue God. It's God who first pursues us. And so when we have this high view and lofty view of salvation, it helps us understand how salvation happens in, in, in our Christian walk. Um, and so sometimes the temptation is to put the onus on ourselves and say, man, it was me who came up 50% and God saw my 50% and then was like, ooh, okay, I'm going to reach you uh, the other 50%. But the reality is scripture doesn't teach us that anywhere in the Bible. What it tells us is that we were at 0% and God in 100% reached down to us, saved us out of our sickness of our sin, in spite of our moralness that was never could measure up to anything that, that God would look at and say, wow, I really need them on my team. It was in spite of the fact that we were sinners, God reached down his love and his kindness and he pulls us up to him and he rescues us. And if you're a Christian here this morning, the test
testament of your life, the testimony of your life is that God rescued me, I didn't rescue myself. And so we have this high view of salvation. Now, that leads us into where Isaiah helped us last week so wonderfully have this heart for the lost. Like, if that's true, if that's true that God is the rescuer, then our hearts should break for those who aren't rescued yet, and we want to see them come to know Christ. We want to see, we want to do all that we can. And Isaiah said something so wonderfully, and Mike uh, helped us wrap up our gathering last week talking about being interruptible. Um, I'm already looking at my clock. I don't have time to do this, but I just want to share a quick story of something that I heard this week. You know, there was somebody here who heard this thing about being interruptible, and they were in a store this week, and they felt that God had spoken to them about being interruptible. And, they, and God had told them, hey, I want you to go out and sit on this bench outside of the store. And they're like, what? Like, God, what are you saying? And in their obedience to God and listening to his voice, they, they came out and they sat down on a bench. And then lo and behold, what happens in a couple moments later, somebody walks up to them and says, I need forgiveness. Will you forgive me? The stranger. And such a beautiful moment of God opening up and, and, and breaking into this person's world and letting them be interruptible. And uh, that was just what Isaiah encouraged us. So I want to say, man, the word of God is faithful. It's true. It doesn't return void. And it bears fruit in our hearts. And my encouragement to us, even as we go this week, that there's more of us being interruptible. That's not part of the sermon this morning. This morning. But if we have this high view of salvation, if we have this lofty view that it's God who is the owner of salvation, God who does the work in us, then that obviously, if we read through the chapter 9, it gives us this lens of which we're to see salvation. And what we're going to look at this morning is, what, what I don't want us to get caught up in again is all these big words of predestination and um, foreknowledge, and all these words that, that, you know, like Calvinism or Armenianism. I don't want us to get, the, the word Calvinism and Armenianism, it's not in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture, okay? But it does say some things here that help us understand the sovereignty of God. And that's what I want to encourage us this morning. If the big picture, the big word, the thing that keeps flashing in your minds and in your eyes and in your heart and in your ears is that God is sovereign. Now, what does that mean, that God is sovereign? Often when we think of sovereignty, we think of like a king sitting, you know, like we did a um, serve team appreciation in December. If you, didn't, if you weren't there, it's because you're not on a serve team. You missed out. That's my little way of guilt tripping you to get on a serve team. But what we did is we had this throne up here. We did like a medieval theme kind of thing. And we had Kirk and Mandy Randolph here, and Kirk was the king, Mandy was the queen, and they sat up on these thrones, all spray-painted gold, and, you know, they were the judges. And every team that was doing certain things, you know, like they painted a picture, or they did, they did all these, they created a poem, they heralded for the king, and it was Kirk, the king, who decided whether it was worthy or not to be accepted who the winner was. And so often when we think of sovereignty, we think of the king who sits and he makes all the decisions. Now that's an earthly understanding of sovereignty, about sovereignty being vested in an earthly vessel, in a person. But when we think of it in the terms of God, we need to, uh, we need to remove the anthropomorphism, that's a word, uh, that means that we, we turn godness into humanness. 
We need to remove that from the truth of who God is and just look toward God and when we understand his sovereignty. And so here's a helpful definition. I actually got this from John Piper. So if you don't like it, you can email him, not me, okay? What does God being sovereign mean? It means this. God's power and authority override all other powers and authorities. Nothing can can stop God's plans and purposes. Let me say that again. God's power and authority override all other powers and authorities. Nothing can stop God's plans or purposes. Now, that is something that we as Christians say, yes, we believe that. Sometimes we don't live it out like we believe it. And what I'm asking us to do today is with this understanding of God's sovereignty to put on God's sovereignty glasses so that when we read chapter 9, which we're going to do here in a moment, we have this understanding of how we should look at chapter 9, okay? So some, some helpful things to understand God's sovereignty. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, so we're going to do a little bit of a, of a professor college class this morning. I'm just going to give us some information, but these are really good texts that are proofs of understanding the sovereignty of God. Job 42, verse 2, this is probably one of the best understandings the Scripture gives us about understanding God's sovereignty. It says, I know that you could do all things, speaking about God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing. Nothing can thwart the purposes. What's the word thwart? It's not a, it's not a lisp with an S. It is what means something that can be stopped. Nothing can get in the way of God's purposes. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, speaking of God, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You ever find that in your own heart when God's wanting to do something that you're particularly not that excited about? God, what is going on? What's happening here? Well, just go back to Daniel chapter 435. It helps us when we understand the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This isn't just God's wishful thinking, right? This isn't God hopefully saying these things that he'll somehow convince us about these truths of him. What this is, is God declaring the truth of who he is, that he is sovereign. Uh, Ephesians 1 uh, verse 11, it says, he, speaking of him, but he who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is there anything in there that speaks about us controlling God or us being able to manipulate God? Yes, I agree. I think scripture does show us that we can intervene, that we can intercede. You see Abraham intervening, right? Where he's like the, the, the city of Lot and he goes to God, God, if there's just so many righteous people, Please don't destroy it. And God's like, okay, we'll look. And then he doesn't find that many. And he keeps going down and down and down and down until where God's just like, listen, buddy, this is not looking good for you and your hope. But you see this interaction between God 
and man. And yes, I think that speaks to us that we have a part to play, that we can beseech, we can intercede. This morning in our pre-service prayer, I said, guys, what do we want people to, to encounter in the sense of God's presence this morning? Let's intercede on behalf of our church this morning that God would come and manifest his presence, that there would be a sense of people encountering God for who he is. And I think we can do that. We, we have an un, unsaved fam, family member. We say, God, will you please rescue them? God, will you pour out your heart upon them? Will you regenerate their heart? And I think we have a role to play. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. God is in control. What about some examples? It's, you know, we got to take it the next step further. Is God just sovereign? Beep. Yes, I understand that. Well, how does Scripture help us see even some ways that that outplays? Number one, we could look at outcome. It says this in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, which means like the dice. If you roll the dice, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're rolling dice. and how it's, It says, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That just says to me, I love this because God is intimately involved in every single aspect of our lives. You know, the butterfly effect, you ever heard that? Like, it flaps its wings, and then this is going to cause this to happen, this cause, as if somehow the butterfly was the one who caused this thing to happen. I think God is involved in even the butterfly flapping its wings, which causes me to look at the butterfly, which causes me to walk over here, which causes me to, like, talk to this person, which causes that person to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which then in turn gets them saved, and then their whole family gets saved. Why? Because this butterfly was flapping its wings? No, because God knew the dice was rolling, and he designed my eyes to be able to get caught off, distracted when I was supposed to be in this store, and he told me to go sit down on a park bench and then wait for somebody. Thanks, Lorelai. <laughs> what about nature? Well, yes. Psalm 135 or 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Even nature. God's involved why is it a little overcast out today? Because God wants it to be a little overcast today. So like me, when I get a little like, oh, it's raining. People can't come to church when it's raining. People melt when it's going to rain. I just have to go, God, you're sovereign. Uh, what about animals? Well, yes, the Bible talks about animals too, you animal lovers. This is Southern California. We all love animals. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Basically, what Jesus is saying here is not... I mean, they don't have a lot of worth. You know, they're just little pennies. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Jesus even, God knows about little birds. Little tiny birds. I remember in the, the church we were back in Houston, we had uh, mirrored windows all outside our building, and birds would often go, boom, and hit the window, and then they would not really recover. Sorry. It's going to be Okay. You know that God even saw that little bird? God loves that little bird. And he knows about its little life and he knew that it would probably fly into the window. What about nations? It's bigger, right? Second Chronicles 20 verse 6 says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. If you're freaking out about the elections right now, 
It's going to be okay. I promise. Okay? I promise. I, I can't give you the guarantee. God can give you the guarantee here. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And then Psalm 33, verse 10 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Man, the United Nations got nothing on God. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Where do you see this in Genesis, right? Tower of Babel. People are getting together. They, God looks down and goes, man, these guys are unified. There's nothing they can't do. We better, we better change some stuff up here. And then what about human outcome? Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Man, you can all day long, we, we're, we're, we're hoping like, our tax, like some kind of tax return is going to come back, you know? We're about to file our taxes, and we're like, God, please, you know? Why? Because we want to go on, like, vacation. We want to take all our kids. We have four kids to go on vacation. So it's, it's a thing. It's a thing, all right? When you have four kids, you got to, like, it's, it's like planning. And so we're going to plan. We're going to do all this thing. We're going to, like, try to go all these places we want to go, enjoy our family time together. We're going to do our best to plan it. But then we have to lay it before the Lord because we know God's going to be involved somehow in there. He's going to lead us and guide us, and we're going to do our best. But you ever hear somebody say, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, right? They're not just being like old school spiritual. What they're saying is, no, I, I've got a good plan, and I'm, but I'm submitting it to the Lord. And I was just talking with Steve yesterday. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? How you feeling? And he goes, I'll see you Sunday. And I said, Lord willing, I'll be there. I don't know. Well, I'm here. It's going to be okay, babe. We're, and then Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21.1. The king of the heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Now, I get it. Some of these verses, you go, man, what the heck? Is God just an egomaniac? Well, Hopefully, as we look at the rest of Romans chapter 9, it's going to help us answer that question for us. And so let's dig into it here with our time remaining. Romans, starting in verse 4 of chapter 9, says this. First, Paul starts off and he wants his, his kinsmen, his nation to be saved, and he knows that they're cut off. And he speaks about them and he says, they are Israelites to them belong, this is what it says, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So basically, through Israel, God started his plan of salvation, and out of them comes all of these things that we understand true about the gospel. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, Here's where we have to take sovereignty and we have to marry it to salvation. You guys ready? Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, first thing is we have to understand God is sovereign in salvation. Remember, we have a high view of salvation. Well, that leads us automatically to the fact that God is sovereign if we have a high view of that. And what Paul is trying to help us here understand is it's not because they were born Jewish, an Israelite nation, and they have all of this inheritance, spiritual inheritance, that's going to save them. So here's an example. My kids, 
They would be known as PKs, right? Preacher's kids. You ever hear about preacher's kids? Well, they're notorious for what? Going crazy, going rebellious, doing all these kind of things, right? They have the privilege of being in our home. That is a privilege. (laughs) Growing up in a home that has a high value of church community, of prayer, of worship, of understanding the church in its rightful place, understanding that, you know, all, all of my kids, they serve on a serve team, There's, they're involved in all these kind of areas, not just because they're so good, but we've helped them learn those things. And out of that, they've, they've said, yeah, we understand, we see that. And they're involved in kind of lots of areas. And because of Marianne and I's leadership, they have the privilege of kind of hopefully uh, uh, dovetailing behind us, getting caught in the vacuum of our leadership and filling into the slipstream of that. And one day they're going to be out of our home. Thank God, one day it's going to happen. Just kidding. It's coming. One day it's going to take place, and what they can do at that moment is they could choose to either say, Hey, I'm going to continue to serve, I'm going to continue to do this, I'm going to continue to love God, I'm going to say, but if they stop doing that and they somehow look back and say, Well, God actually looks at me and He likes me a lot and He loves me and He saved me because my parents were Christians and they were pastors in the church. Or you know, I, I put in my time. I did a lot of this and this and this and this. I served in kids, and I served on the worship team, and I served here. And, you know, there would be Saturdays where I'd come with my dad, setting up chairs, and, you know, all these kind of things. I did a lot of service, so I'm going to allow that to kind of build some kudo points with me and God. God's going to look at me, and he's going to say, hey, I'm going to save you because you have this godly inheritance from your parents. No, see, it doesn't work that way. And it's just as much as the Jews would try to say, no, 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 hey, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but you don't know I'm a direct descendant from Abraham himself. If I were to prick my arm, Abraham would drip out. And Paul says, guess what, buddy? That means jack squat when it comes to the sovereign plan of God's salvation for you. Because neither your biblical inheritance, no matter how much of this you grew up in the church, no no matter how much you give to the church, no matter how much Bible you can quote, no matter how morally good you live your life, it doesn't count up into the sovereign plan of God's salvation. Now, you guys doing okay? Holy cow. All right. Who said I only have 35 minutes? That was me. Okay, verse 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. So Paul's saying, hey guys, don't freak out. You know, God started this plan and now he's answering these like obviously questions that people are going to pose. Well then, if God started this, then did his plan of salvation get messed up? Did it not come to, and, and Paul's saying, no, 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 hold, hold your horses here. Don't freak out. Listen, it's not that God has failed. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Do you even notice here, if we were back in verses four and five, Paul speaks about the Israelites as them and they. 
him actually being one. Now, what's happened for Paul is God has saved him. He set him apart. Before, Paul had this understanding that because I'm an Israelite, because I'm a Jew, because I have papers in my hand from Damascus going into this church, I'm going to take them out. Because of this right standing I have with my kinsmen, I am counted righteous. And then God knocks him off his horse and says, hey, it's not about that. And he's now become a new creation. And Paul states that here. In verses 6 through 8, it's not about because I'm a Jew. It's because I have a new family and identity. The problem is that we want to kind of make salvation in our own terms, in our own ways. I like the idea of me meeting God 50%. I really like that idea. Because there's times in my life where I feel like I've done that. God, you've seen me take steps toward you. You've seen me try to lift myself up and get close. You've seen the desires in my heart. My argument is, I think the overriding scripture says, even in our trying, that is God's initiating. That is God's drawing us close to him. And so if we take the way we want salvation to come, then we don't have a sovereign view. And I think what Paul does here, he continues, he gives us two sets of brothers that are going to help us understand what he's talking about here. He says, the first, uh, we're not going to have time to read through it, but he talks about uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Now, if you know about Isaac and Ishmael, there's a man named Abraham. God, he was old, and he, God says, you're going to have many, many children um, and you're going to be the father of many nations. He takes his name from Abram, which means little dad, little father, and he takes, t- changes it to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And in this effort of Abraham wanting to see God's purpose and plan, his, his uh, uh, plan of salvation be worked out, what does Abraham do? He tries to make it happen in his own flesh, in his own effort. And so his wife says, hey, babe, Uh, Have you considered the fact that I'm not going to make this happen? So what about my handmaiden, Hagar? She's a little bit younger than me, so why don't you have knowledge with her? And then, so he does that, and he thinks, what a great idea. This is amazing. My wife's wife's so smart. And then they have a baby. He's like, this must be the way it's going to happen. Yes, God, your plan is happening. And then what happens? God says, no, it's not out of the flesh. It's going to be out of the promise. It's going to be out of Sarah. And so he births Isaac, and now there's Ishmael. Ishmael, the firstborn son, and out of Isaac. Why does God choose not to choose Ishmael and Isaac? Because God's sovereign, and that's the way he planned his salvation to come, was through faith and through promise. And my point here this morning is we can try to own salvation and say, I want salvation to be based on my merit. And God says, "Mm mm-mm. It's not about how hard you try. See, I have a promise for you, and I'm going to choose the foolish things to confound the wise, and it's in spite of your sin that I'm going to pull you out of the miry clay. There's another group uh, of brothers here that if you continue from Isaac, Isaac then has two, two boys. One is named Jacob. One is named Esau. And if you know anything about these, there's the, the two brothers, uh, Esau is like the man's man, okay? He's the Mike O'Brien of the Bible here, okay? He's hairy, he's got like a radio voice, he, 
This dude, he is like hunting with a bow. and It's like you think farm table's fresh. He's bow to table, okay? So what he's doing is he's hunting the, the, the deer, the goat, whatever he's doing. Boom, lays it on the table. And he's like, yeah, man, right? Jacob now is like the little snively, little weasley, uh, complainer. And his name means deceiver. Who does God choose out of that? chooses Jacob. The one, and, and, and I think, man, God just is always telling us, look it, look it, look it. This is not about the guy who should be picked. This is not about the guy who's got it all together. All the Michael Bryans, we all go, yes, it makes sense that he's a Christian. God, of course he chose him. And then we go look at Jacob and we're like, God chose Jacob? The one who tried to, to trick his brother and he did? tricks his brother out of getting the birthright. He puts a goat on his arms and he, his dad's blind. He says, who is it? And he's like, it's Esau. Let me feel. Oh yeah, it's Esau. Goat hair. I mean, how? Anyways. So, and God says, out of Jacob will I choose my plan for salvation. See, this whole thing is we want to go back to our way of salvation. There's another group. There's two brothers. In Luke 15, if you know the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, there's one son, squanders his wealth, says, Dad, give me my inheritance. I'd rather you just be dead now and give me all my money. And Dad says, okay, so be it. Here you go. Squanders it, ends up living with the pigs, comes back. Maybe I could just be a servant. My, my dad's servants are better than I do right now. And the Bible says from a long way off, the dad sees the boy and he runs out, puts a ring on him, puts a robe on him. And then you know what the older brother does? Should have rejoiced, should have been ecstatic that his brother returned home. Says, what the heck? Dad, I've been serving you all these years faithfully. I've been giving. I've been doing whatever you want. You never once, not even once, offered to throw me a party. And the dad says, son, for party anytime you want. And I think we often take the view of the older brother and say, God, what the heck? Look how much I'm serving. Look how good I am. Look at all these things God says. It's in spite of that. I love you. It's in spite of that. I'm not going to choose you because you're such a good guy and you got it all together. I'm going to choose you in spite of the fact that you're not that good. Now, you, we're almost done. You guys okay? Marianne, are we doing okay? All right. She's looking at me like, mm-hmm, okay. Here's what I want us to know. In God's sovereignty, there's two things we must understand about God's sovereignty is that he's always just, always just, and he's always merciful. We could start to freak ourselves out and say God's this egomaniac, he's only, he's, he's just sovereign, and in his sovereignty he's mean and he's grumpy and he just doesn't care, and he's like a tornado that goes through the room and everyone, pieces lie everywhere. No, that's not the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is, is, is exact like a scalpel. And it's just, and it's merciful. Verses 14 through 21, Romans 9 says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So Paul is saying, hey, God's in control. 
God does what he wants, and then somebody would say, hey, that's not fair. It doesn't seem fair that God can just do, like, how is it fair that the, the good son, who was faithful all the time, and the bad son, who was unfaithful, gets all the good stuff? How is that fair? And this is how Paul helps us understand. And this is some jagged pills to swallow. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say, to, says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Like, how is that fair? God, this doesn't make any sense. For who can resist his will? Paul just gives a very definitive answer. But who are you, O oh man? I think some versions say little man. <laughs> to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Oy! Some tough words. But what Paul is wanting us to see is that God in his sovereignty is just. How can God be just if God controls if God's the one who is totally sovereign, even in salvation, how can God be just? And in modern vernacular or colloquialism, I think we would say, that seems unfair. And let me just answer this thing about the fairness of God. My kids are all different ages. And in their age groupings, they go to bed at different times. My youngest boy, he goes to bed at 7.30. Asia, the oldest, 3 a.m. <laughs> Why? Because she can. Is it fair that Judah has to go to bed at 7.30? It's not fair, but it's just. Why? Because I know that my nine-year-old, if he chose to, would probably stay up till 3 in the morning, eating candy, watching Cartoon Network, playing with Legos, and he would be wrecked for the following school day. Now me, out of my love and kindness, I've said, buddy, 7.30. He could say, Dad, it's not fair. Asia, they get to stay up till 3 a.m. How come I? And I think that's what we do with God is we say, God, what the heck? How come this and that and me? How come I'm, or this person, that? And God just says, I'm God. I know the, the, the end from the beginning. I know everything. I have this all worked out. And why would you question me, you little man? And this thing about fairness with salvation, I think what we often do is go, God, it's not fair. You know what? You do not want God to be fair when it comes to salvation. Here is, if we want God to be fair, what God should do is send us all to hell. 
every single person ever born should go to hell if God's fair. Why? Because we're all sinners. Romans answers this question in three verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Remember we talked about we're born with a sinful nature. And if we want God, see, it's God in his justice, but it's also God in his mercy that he chooses us in spite of our sin. And here's where I think the problem lies. We want God to be better than humanity. We want God to be just higher, bigger, better than humanity. As if he's like the better version of ourselves. God is not the better version of ourselves. God is so different and other. He is the definition of holiness and justice. We cannot compare him to us, but we do it all the time. If you're pouting about a circumstance in your life, it's because you don't understand the character of God. If there's anxiety in your heart about a situation, it's because we don't understand the character of God. I'm saying this to myself. But when we go, God, who am I that I should question you? What I should be doing is reveling in the fact that I, I have nothing to offer, yet you offered to me your mercy. And that leads me to our last point. Is that God is not only just, but he's also merciful. You know, there's no one else that we should want to be in control when it comes to sovereignty. I think we, we try to put ourselves there. We try to want to be our own sovereign little kings, right? Uh, the Invictus poem. You ever heard that one? I am uh, my own captain. I, don't, I can't remember it now. I'm going to just destroy it. I'm the captain of my own ship. I make my own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. I will stand firm. When these come, things come to me, I will be strong because I am the captain of my own ship. As Christians, we shouldn't want to be the captain of our own ship. We should want God to be the captain of our ship. And when we have a right view of God's sovereignty, I think it gives us security in our life. If God is in control and he's sovereign in my life and he's just and he's merciful. Remember, let's, let's hold both of these truths in tension, right? Oh, God's just, some of us love the justice of God. Get him, God, right? Some of us just love the mercy of God. Oh, he's gentle, meek, and mild. And we hold both of these truths in tension and we walk this line called sovereignty and what we do is we don't go either way and so when we are, are tempted, when there's insecurity that comes in our lives, we remind ourselves, God is sovereign. He's just, he's merciful. When hardships come, and they will, they will come, no matter how big or small. When sickness comes, when death comes knocking at, its door, at your door, when financial, whatever it is, relational brokenness, when it comes, and it will, God, you are sovereign. God, you're bigger than this. You know, you knew this was coming. You're good, you're merciful. I choose to put my hope, I choose to put my trust in the one who controls all things. The crown jewel of God's sovereignty, I think, is his mercy. 
This is what it says in verse 3, going all the way back to the beginning. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. You know who was cut off for our sake? Jesus. Kelly, you're talking about the sovereignty. God chooses. God does all these. Yes, he does. But I believe his sovereignty is rooted and grounded in the foundation of his mercy. It's always the lenses of which God exacts his sovereignty is through a merciful lens. And ultimately we see that in Jesus allowing himself to be cut off from the Father. For a moment, yeah, just for a moment. But in that moment of deep, dark wickedness and sorrow, never having experienced being cut off from the Father from eternity past and never will in eternity future again, for that moment was excruciating, being cut off from the Father on our behalf. Why? Because in God's sovereignty, he's merciful. And the reason, if you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm a Christian, is because God in his sovereign plan of salvation in your life held both justice and mercy and saved you from the wrath to come. Let's stand this morning.